Good morning, everybody. My name is Mildred, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. I hail from across the border in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and I bring you greetings. Isn't it nice that at least so far two countries can get along together? And that whether you are with us or we are with you, we get along, especially here. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I am, as I said, from Toronto. I have a home group in Toronto. <clears throat> it's the Rocks Glen Traditional Group. If you're in Toronto sometime, do give me a call. We meet Mondays and fr Thursdays, and I would be very pleased to take you to our meeting. My dry date is May the 18th, 1973. And you may be wondering what life is like after 49 years. I won't say 50, it's not there yet. But uh, I have lots to say. And uh, I'm very happy to share with you what it is that I have to say because it's all about, really, G-O-D, not the church God. I gave that up a long time ago. But what I found here was the spirit. Tom Ivester, when I was new, said to me, he had found the spirit of good. And that did it for me. It settled all my old theological arguments and all that kind of stuff. I'd like to introduce my friend Marilyn, who's here with me. She's in Al-Anon, and so we were happy yesterday to uh, see that. Uh, we had a tough day traveling on Friday, and I was really tired when we got here. And I have to say, my tiredness absolutely vanished when I got to that door. And I felt the energy in this room and came into this room, and the room was jammed and the sound and the energy. And I looked at these signs. You know, I've counted balls all weekend. <laughs> I have, so never mind. <laughs> And uh, so that was wonderful. <laughs> I'm talking about coming into the room. <laughs> I see some of you else are interested in the same thing. Anyway, I want to say thank you to a few people. Because sometimes I think, you know, we look at the big thing, and I'm grateful to you, Jeffrey, and to you, Austin, and to all the committee. That's wonderful. Sometimes it's some of these little things. I have found this in my life. Sometimes it's not the big to-do that makes the difference. It's the little kindnesses. We came down the escalator, and a man was standing there with a piece of paper with my name on it. He was on time, and he was there, and he had a little uh, vase with two roses in it to welcome. Thank you so much, Stephen. Come on, stand up. Let's give Stephen a thank. What, what a lovely beginning to the weekend. And then he took us to the door, and he said, I'll phone. And he said, they'll bring the car. 
he had thought ahead of time that the car in the parking lot would be a long distance, so he had his friend Mario bring the car, so we just stood there and the car drove up just as if we were somebody. <laughs> so Mario, stand up and we'll just let... You know, when I think about this, I'll think about a lot of things, and right at the top of the list will be Stephen and the way you greeted us that day. It just meant, it meant everything, and you too, Mario, of course. Who wouldn't at my age to be greeted by two young men? Wow, <laughs> this is good. And thank you, David, sitting back there doing all the work. And somebody that has been forgotten, I think, not forgotten, but we just haven't said anything. And that's that hardworking person doing the signing. many hours you have spent signing and I think it's time that we said thank you just to see somebody so selflessly giving of herself yes okay now I'm here to share with you my experience strength and hope and I am happy to do that on the morning of May the 20th, 1973, if you had said a miracle was going to happen today or somebody would be transformed, namely this loser in the psych ward, you just could not have imagined it. I could not have imagined what was going to happen that day. And so I was in a psych ward and that morning, the nurse came to me and said, we are going to discharge you today. And I can tell you that was not good news. Why? I had no home. I had no money. I had no friends. There was not one person that morning that I thought I could call. My family didn't want me. All these people weren't bad. I was the one who had shut them out and done things. They didn't want us, they wanted to see the backside of me. And uh, so uh, when she said they were going to discharge me, I went to my room <clears throat> and I did a, a sort of inventory, not the fourth step inventory. I did an assessment. <clears throat> What's wrong with me? Why have I been picked up Friday by the police as a tramp on a park bench, brought here, to, and I've been here two days, and now they're going to discharge me, and I have no place to go. What's wrong with me? And I did an assessment, and I said to myself, what, what could you do, Mildred? You're smart. What could you do to fix your life? And I thought, what have I tried? Well, I've tried church. I've tried convent. I've tried the university. I've tried men. I've tried money. I've tried buying stuff. I've tried everything. I, I tried music. I used to direct a 300 voice choir. I've tried all kinds of things 
And I thought, none of them have worked. And I thought of the people that I knew. And it seemed to me everybody had a smile on their face. And I didn't know how to put a smile on my face. And so I made a decision. I'm out of here. I'm done. I am done, 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 done. I don't know how to do this. I think that is the finest prayer I have ever said. God, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how. So I'm going to end it. And my thought was, it can't be worse on the other side. And if, if I take my life and it's worse on the other side, I don't care. Can't be worse than this. And so with that, I asked the nurse to get my coat. I mean, if you're going to commit suicide, you should be warm. <clears throat> and she went to get my coat, and the unbelievable happened. You see, I think that when we share our experience, strength, and hope, I think the big deal about it is how God acts in our life, because I believe in a power bigger than I am. I'm going to say, God, don't get your danders up. I'm not talking church. I'm not talking theology. I'm not talking religion. I'm talking about a power that's bigger than me, and I believe a power that's bigger than you. <clears throat> and uh, I was freed of the compulsion and the obsession. And in 49 years and 11 months and a couple of weeks, I've never had the compulsion again. I've never had the obsession. I stood there stunned because my soul, you see, I think we need to listen to our souls. What my soul said to me was, you're free. You don't have to drink anymore. And that's the truth. I have never spent five seconds on, am I still an alcoholic? Of course I am. Nobody told me I'm free of that, but it's just, it, it doesn't exist as a problem. It doesn't exist as a solution anymore. Did I understand that the morning of May the 20th? Not at all. What I did, I just remember saying, I don't have to drink anymore. But I don't know how to live sober. You'll have to send me somebody. Who's you? I didn't know who I was talking to. And there was a rap on the door. Now, you tell me. How does this come about, that at the moment that this kind of thing happens, there's a rap on the door, and I swear to you, there was a rap on the door, and a man stood there, and he really was there, I think. <laughs> and he said, uh, I saw you at breakfast. He said, you're in trouble, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, you're alcoholic. I said, yeah, you want to make something of it? And he, <laughs> And he said, no. He said, I came to offer you help. You tell me how a thing like that happens. He said, there's a hospital treatment center. In 1973, there were no treatment centers in Toronto. And uh, Dr. Bell had started a hospital because it, he uh, believed that, that people with addictions sometimes needed extra help. And this man said, if you are willing to go, I'll take you there tomorrow. And I said, sure, I'll go. And I remember he left, and he said, he said I'll be here at 10 o'clock in the morning, and I, I'll be waiting. And that's exactly what happened.
That's how I got there. I stayed in that institution 28 days, and then they freed me. And again, I still don't have a home. I don't have money. I don't have anything. And they gave me enough money that I could go down to Skid Row and find a place. I don't look like a Skid Row person, but I know what Skid Row is about. I lived there for a year. Now, I had one advisor, it was the chief psychiatrist at Donwood, and he said, you've got to get a job. You have no money. And so I pounded on doors. You know, I'm a well-educated woman. You, if you had offered me a job, I couldn't have taken it. So I pounded on doors, and I offered to sweep, I offered to clean, I offered all kinds of stuff, and a day and a half went by, and the man offered me a job sweeping a factory floor. That's how I spent my first year sober, sweeping a factory floor. And I was glad to do it, and I was hungry most of the time because I didn't make enough money for, for anything. But you see, God's at work in this. If there's any message that is strong in my consciousness, it's this. God has never missed a beat in my life. I have always, always, always gotten exactly what I have needed. It's not always what the ego said, but it has always been that which has moved me forward. And at Donwood, the chief psychiatrist had taken a liking to me. I found out later he was a dedicated Hindu. And so he said to me when I left, he said, I want you to come see me once a week. That was my only contact, my only loving, loving contact in the world. I would go to see him. And he never talked religion. He never talked God. What he would say, I don't know what we talked about, and I certainly must have been a lovely person to spend an hour with. And, uh, but I went every week. And what I do remember, he'd say, Mildred, whatever you do, don't drink and don't drug. And he said, I don't know how this will all work out, but it will. You know what? He was absolutely right. The instruction he gave me strengthened me. It kept me in the human race. And uh, six months into it, and this is the other thing. You know, sometimes I have thought, I'm going to think things out. You know, I love your theme, the language of the heart. That's what my life has been about, because I didn't have much heart action, believe me, when I came here. I've got a lot of heart action now, because that's, that's how this goes. I think there's a purpose for us being here, and it's not about becoming rich and famous and all that stuff. It is about finding our place and then finding out how we can do God's work, as St. Francis so said, let me be an instrument so I can carry whatever needs to be carried to whomever needs it. So uh, I needed to be at that institution. See, I'll tell, I'll tell you how the, all this came about, but uh, I needed to be at that institution to get back into AA, because when I got sober, I wanted nothing to do with my, my words, stupid AA. Look at here I am. It hasn't helped me. I went for five and a half years back in the days when I wasn't sane. 
and I went and I came here to AA five and a half years stoned. I can tell you it doesn't work so well. <laughs> Always sat in the first row, right where Dave, my buddy, is sitting. And I expected people were going to transform me. I didn't know what that meant, but I came to the meetings, and that's where I met some of the giants in AA. That's where I met Chuck Chamberlain, because I was in Prince Albert at the time, and Chuck was friends. They were, I, I believe they might have been trustees together. I don't know. But he was friends with Cease Corrigal. And uh, he was friends with Mac Cheater, and they were in that, in that area. And he used to come. And Chuck spent many an hour sitting with me, talking to me, trying to talk sense into me. And the one thing he would, and I, of course, Chuck, I've got so many problems. I've got this and that. And he'd say, no, you have one. He said, you think you're separate from God, and you think you're separate from your fellow man. And he said, when you get that straight, you'll be fine. And Chuck, wherever you are, you were right. It took a long time to get to that place, but I get it now. You know, and he'd draw that little picture. He said, you think you're out there, and you're not, he said. And I don't know how many times he came to Prince Albert. And that was always his message to me. So where did I start out? I started out in Saskatchewan. Many of you won't know where that is. It's, mid it's prairies in Canada. A family of 10, and I was the baby. And uh, was I mistreated? No. I was loved. I was a lot younger than the others. The others were all kind of grown up. I was kind of like an afterthought, I guess. And so I got babied, but there was a problem. And what I had learned to do, I love the sky. I used to watch the sunsets in Saskatchewan on the prairies. The sky would be ablaze with color, and I'd sit there and just love it. And then at night, I'd go out, and the sky would be ablaze with stars. And we could see the aurora borealis, and I learned to love all that. And we went to church. We were Roman Catholic. And so I heard about a god who had lots of power. And so I had a problem. About three I was when I realized that the sister that I really loved, I was three, she was 16. And she cried a lot. And she, she had been injured at birth, and she couldn't learn as fast as the other kids. And they kept her in grade three till she was 16. Today, we would not do things like that. But in those days, they didn't know better. And so it became my mission to get it fixed for her so that people would dance with her, that people would include her, that they, she'd be doing better in school. Seemed sensible to me. I mean, there were no harsh people around our house. Everybody seemed good. Let's get it fixed. And nothing happened. I understand now, my adult brothers and sisters, they understood. I did not. There's a problem. I want milk. They gave me milk. I want an apple. They gave me an apple. I want this fixed. I expected it was going to get fixed, and it didn't. And then I went to God. If they won't fix it, then I'm going to go to God, and God surely will fix it. That didn't happen. You know, I didn't understand growth and change and all the exigencies of 
social life and all of that. And I became fearful, and I became kind of angry with God. And I was really, I cried a lot. And then at five, the magic happened. I took a drink. There was always alcohol in our house. Nobody, I had a brother who became an alcoholic, but he got sober. But no, I, I never heard anything about alcoholism or any of that. I never saw misbehaving. Da I was daddy's little girl. His friends came. They needed the drinks. I poured the drinks, and it was beautiful. Little Mildred, and I poured some into myself, and that was beautiful. That was my answer. Dr. Silkworth says it the best I can say it. He says we're restless, irritable, and discontent until we can again experience, and look how he says it, the sense of ease and comfort. He doesn't say ease and comfort. You know, when I look at that book, there's not a word misplaced, and there's not a place where the wrong word is used. The sense of ease and comfort isn't the real thing. It feels like it. So what happens? I used to say, I like that stuff in the bottle. And so that's what happened. I was an alcoholic from the word go. That's all I thought about. Where's the booze? Because I, right then, couldn't stand the world. I didn't like people. I didn't like the fact that Dora kept crying and nobody fixed it. I didn't know what to do. I'm a little kid, but I took on all those ideas. We know now how dangerous that is. Anyway, uh, it, it, that took me where it took me for the next 35 years. That's all I wanted to do was drink. I, um, I'm smart, so I finished high school at 14. Couldn't get into the universities. So I hung around with a bunch of boys, and by this time I was drinking more and more and more and more, and had a good time. And then somebody spoiled it. I was 17 years old when one of the girls announced she was going to a convent, and everybody made a fuss. I don't like when I'm not the one getting the fuss made over me. So I announced, I'm going to a convent. And trust me, they didn't make a fuss. They laughed at me. They said, you don't belong in a convent. You know what? They were right. But you, you tell me I can't do stuff? I'll show you. I wrote to the States, because I knew that's where the swinging convents were. And finally, I found one. They said, we have a mother house in Hamilton. And, uh, you know, they took me without smelling me. Big mistake. <laughs> I was drunk the night I entered, and I stayed drunk for the 15 years I was there. I'm, I'm not proud of that, but alcohol doesn't ask you what you do for a living. It doesn't ask you what your moral values are. It doesn't ask you when you prayed the last time and all that kind of stuff. I was a good nun, so to speak, <laughs> but I had to drink. And, you know, did I feel bad about it? Not really, because I felt I don't feel... See, I was like two people. I was Mildred not drinking. You didn't like me. I was quiet. I was shy. I was introverted. Drinking, I'm on the table. I'm the life of the party until I'm under the table. But that's another story. 
So I worked hard in the convent. They educated me. They very, I got a great education. And uh, at, we got a mother superior who understood uh, a lot of things about the way the church was going. And she said, you don't belong here, sister. She said, you're young enough. You can make a life for yourself. And so we wrote to Rome, and I got my dispensation. And I remember standing on the convent steps. I'm free. I'm OK. I, you know, I've got my secular clothes. I no longer have the black, uh, long black habit on. I'm no longer Sister Mary Eugenia. And I've dispensed from the vows, had fiddled around with those anyway as necessary. <laughs> and uh, I didn't understand that I was alcoholic. I drink because I'm unhappy. What I didn't see was I was unhappy before convent. I was unhappy in convent. And now I'm going out. But you know, I found the bars. And I found the men. And all was good for a little while for a very little while. Three months go by, and I'm in jail. I have done some very bad things. I've become kind of a tramp. And uh, uh, they threw me in jail, and I made such a fuss they called the chief of police. I never want to forget that little ceremony. He came down, and he had a piece of paper about this size, and on it were written the charges against me. I, was, I had no sense when I was drinking. The sky was the limit. And he stood over me, and he said, what's wrong with you? I don't know how to answer that. He said, I've been a chief of police for a lot of years. And he said, in all my time, I have never seen an ex-nun in the convent, in, in the jail. And he said, I better never see you here again, either. I thought about it. After he left, I remembered the day I took vows. I remember being dressed all in white. I remember the sun shining through the stained glass windows of the chapel. I remember the organ playing and the choir singing, Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And I'm prostrate on the floor, giving my life to God. And I thought that was it. Three days later, I'm drunk. That should tell you a lot. So we'll talk a little bit about the period after I left the convent, because they started putting me in psych wards. I've been locked up 32 times. I've had 38 electroshock treatments and uh, much therapy. And I knew every psychiatrist, it felt to me like on the planet, so I married one. <laughs> That's not too smart either, you know. <laughs> he too was an alcoholic, and that marriage, of course, didn't last. I, you know, I, I'm not going to go into all the horrors, the jobs lost, the disgusting things that happened. You know, the book says we wind up in the state of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. That's the way my fam, what happened to her? She was raised like the other nine. And look at what she's doing. You know, as my mother said, you're not welcome at home, not the way you're behaving. Now, you want to start staying sober? You can come home and we'll help you, but not the way you're acting. And so 
I lived that way for about seven years, five of them in AA, so to speak, stoned. I wasn't really in AA. But you know what? Alcoholics Anonymous never told me to get out. They all knew what I was up to. They kept saying, keep coming back. Keep coming back. And I did until almost the very end. And I had met Dr. Hoffer. That's how I got into, into AA. Had no idea. No idea about morals. I had no idea about the legalities of things. I had no, all I knew was this. If you sat down with me, I would explain to you. I do not feel good inside. Nobody loves me. That's what I took on from childhood. Nobody really cares about me. If they did, they would have fixed Dora. You see, I always had some results that I demanded. It doesn't work like that. And I felt, I felt alone, and I felt nobody sees me. And, you know, I, and then I'll finish this piece because uh, it, it did go somewhere. You know, um, when I look at the way I lived for those first 40 years, I was doing everything. I, I bet you mathematicians are saying, gee, she must be 90 years old. <laughs> you can smile. <laughs> I am 90. What do you Wouldn't you say a very good-looking 90? <laughs> How this has all happened, and me healthy. You know, I've never been sick a day in my life. Mentally, yes. <laughs> Emotionally, always. <laughs> Physically, never. <laughs> I'll take you on, whoever you are. Son. Some of you young guys just better watch out. <laughs> you too. <laughs> so, um, so I'm in. Uh, I'm living on Skid Row, <clears throat> and. Uh, <clears throat> Six months in. See, this is, I think, the beauty of the power. The power is a power of good. I had to be at the institution because if you had said to me, you should go away, I'd have said, get out of here with that. I'm not doing that stupid stuff. But I was in the institution one day, six months, no AA, no nothing, no prayer, no nothing. And I met a man and he said, you want to come with me to a meeting? Hell yes, I do. <laughs> I didn't know where we were going. We went to an AA meeting, and I fell in love. And I met people there, and I got a sponsor. She got drunk. Two guys stepped up, and they, it wasn't about sex. They said, you, Mildred, are too sick to stay here if you don't do the steps. And I couldn't read at that time. I said, the universe doesn't care much education you have. I just was broken, broken, 
broken. I went to meetings, and they loved me, and I went to meetings, and they loved me, and the year was up, and uh, my first sponsor got drunk, and so I got another sponsor. I didn't like women much, so I sure didn't want a woman sponsor. One day, a real strong-looking man came in, and I just knew I, would, I wasn't after the man. I was after his strength. He was sober 15 years, and he had a strong wife, and I said, would you sponsor me? Because I knew I needed guidance. I needed somebody to teach me and get me out of stuff. And he said, yes, I will be happy to sponsor you. But he said, you will do what I say. He said, I'm not going to run your life. But he said, I will teach you. And that's what he did. He took me through the steps again. And, and then he, he, he dealt with me in my life, you see, as I was. And he knew how to do that. And he didn't just say, go read the book. He said, we'll sit down and we'll find what are the principles? How do we apply the principles? And um, I saw in my life, I had him for 44 years. And, and then he died. And I have another sponsor because, like Todd said last night, he likes a sponsor who can lay eyes on him and see what he's up to. So anyway, a year went by, and uh, the voice said, you know, it's time. You should get a job. Get a job. I looked in the paper, and there were three jobs for professors. And I went, I phoned, and I went to the first one. And that day, I was as put together as I am today. They could, they interviewed me. They said, we'll call you in three weeks. They didn't call in three weeks. They called the next day. They were so impressed with me. They said, we want you. And that's how I got started. They lived to regret that, I can tell you. <laughs> you know, I, I, had no, I had no skills of living. The only thing I knew how to do, I knew how to relate to you if I was drunk. I could handle anything. But sober, I didn't have a clue. And so, but they nurtured me. There were people there who cared about me. You know, me and 200 other professors, and me and 2,000 students. Anyway, that sponsor stepped up. And we did, you know, we, he started to teach me how to live. That's what I did the first six, seven years sober. I paid off debts. He made me do that with interest, by the way. And at the end of that time, one of my friends said, you should buy a house. Now, was I a good member of AA? You bet I was. I was at my meeting. I was the coffee person for 10 years. I loved it because there were lots of men in the group, and they all had to come to me for coffee. Wow, this is good. And um, uh, so I, I got, I, she said, you should buy a house. And I said, I don't have any money saved. And I did buy my house in 10 days. You know, my friend, I haven't seen him for a while, Ken from, Ken Devaney from uh, uh, California. He calls, he talks about God shots. It was a God shot. 
This friend helped me, and we went and got a down payment. And within 10 days, I bought my first house, and I didn't have to sleep with anybody either to do it. This is good. And uh, I was to buy many houses. I'm going to quickly tell you what the first 21 years of my sobriety were like. You see, I think we don't get sober in a vacuum. We get sober in our third dimension bodies. See, the book says we're rocketed into the fourth dimension on May the 20th, 1973. You bet I was rocketed into the fourth dimension. But I didn't know how to do the third dimension. So here I am in this school. I've got this sponsor who's really very helpful to me. And now I buy a house. And now I start. It, it was easy in Toronto in those days for a lot of reasons. And I was to buy many houses. And what I was doing was I was very active in AA. You can be very active on the outside. Nada going on inside. Too busy to pray. Too busy to do the spiritual work. You know, I, I don't think, I don't beat on myself for that. I just think life evolves. You do what you can do. And right then, for me, it was important to have the houses, have the money, have the clothes, have the car, have the, the whatever. And uh, I'm dying on the inside after a while. I'm sitting at the meetings, and I feel absolutely lousy. And one day, I was driving home, and I swear there was a passage from the big book on the dashboard. At least, I saw it there. And it was that passage that says, the day will come when faced by a self-imposed crisis, you will have to make a decision. Either God is everything or nothing. And I thought, I know about this God that's everything. He doesn't help me out. He didn't fix doors. Screw that. Then I thought, what am I going to say? God is nothing. I don't want to do that either. So what I did, I said, God, I believe you're everything. I just don't understand what that means. Truest words. Truest words. And since that day, God every day shows me who he is, shows me how he works, shows me what he wants of me. And I have no doubt today that that power, whatever it is, it's everything. It's present here. It's always present. And, uh, but I was a long way from that because at 21 years, I was suicidal. You know, you can fix the outside, and it looks good, and everybody says, isn't she wonderful, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm dying inside. I go to the meeting, and we have these mottos. I don't know if you use them. And one was, you are no longer alone. Honest to God, I wanted to hit people when they talked about that one, <laughs> because I felt so alone. You see, thank God for Bill Wilson. Thank God for Bill Wilson, because by the time he was trying, you know, th look at that article he wrote on emotional sobriety. He wasn't afraid to acknowledge what was going on in him. Read the 12 and 12, and in step eight, he says it. 
we've got stuff buried below the level of consciousness. At the time of these occurrences, they have given our emotions violent twists, which have since discolored our personalities and altered our lives for the worse. And that was me. I knew how to do the outside, but I didn't know what to do with that. And you know what? The day came when we had a speaker and he talked about the stuff he had buried and how he was not being successful in business and how he had to get help. And guess what? I went to him afterwards and he said, you go for it. He said, you read page uh, step eight. And he said, you'll find where you can go to get help. And I did. Within two weeks, I had a phone number, I had a name, I had a place to go, and I had a book. And I got on the plane and I went. And this man taught me what I needed to know. Because, you know, I, I think when I look at Dr. Bob and Bill, like Dr. Bob seems to have been somewhat a stalwart spiritual man. Once he got the message, they say off he went to the hospital. And he, what did he do? He 12-step people, thousands of them. Bill was crazy like me. If you read his article on emotional sobriety, he says it. He says, we've got to get emotionally sober. And that's the next big forward thrust in AA. See, I can, I can behave good if I make up my mind to on the outside. But I've also got to tend to what's going on in here. When I hear those old ideas, nobody cares about you, Mildred. That's bad news. Because I act out then, for one, and I'm not going to get into that. But it was a 21 years sober. You know something? Where you are is where you are. I had to go through what I went through. And at 21 years, I found out what I needed, the next change I needed to make. And uh, I did it, and I started to change, and I started to meditate. Now, did we meditate in the convent? Sure. But I was drunk all the time. That doesn't go very well. <laughs> so I went and I found a meditation teacher, and I started to meditate. And I started to see things different. I did. I started to look for the spiritual solutions, the spiritual way of looking at things. <coughs> and uh, I started to, another whole attitude to change. You know what the book says? It says, see to it that your relationship with him is right. How's it going to be right if I never talk to him? How's it going to be right if I never spend time? Like one of the most important things I do every day, twice a day, I don't sit in the corner and sing Om, but I do meditate twice a day, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night. And the spiritual work that I do is what gives everything else its energy. You know, like Todd said last night, pray a little, read a little, and so on. I maybe do a little more than that. I do what I have to do to stay right with God. Because, you see, page 55 says something else. 
Page 55 says, deep within, every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. What's wrong with us that we're killing each other? What's wrong with us that we're into racism and sexism and God knows what, and that we can't get along with each other and are in danger of wrecking our planet? And there it is, deep within, every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. And I had my mentor, and he said, Mildred, you don't have to agree with people. You don't even necessarily have to like them. But you do have to recognize the God within them, and you honor the God within them. And, you know, I found out it's all about energy. You know, and there are organizations today, and our book is all about it. It's all about the way we treat each other. You know, in, in the step 10, what does it say? It says, if you're disturbed, you're the one that has to change. There's something wrong with you. I didn't make that up. It's, it's right there. And it talks about, you know, the kinds of things we have to do. I love science. I've learned a lot from science. And you know something? That I think that some of the scientists, they're more spiritual than some of our theologians because they're talking about oneness, that we're all made out of the same thing. And, you know, I used to be so judgmental. I used to hate the world. I'll tell you, when I came here, I literally hated the world. I hated everybody in it, and I, of course, I hated myself in it. How do you practice this if, if that's the way you feel and if you're judgmental toward everybody? I've learned since, and don't, don't hear me say I practice this perfectly. I don't. But what I try to do is try to remember everybody has a unique way they were raised, they learned different things, they had different experiences, and let them wear the hat they like, even if you don't like it. Isn't that a big deal? And if they do things and they believe different things, and if we could only do that, I'm so much happy. That's why the language of the heart, I just yipped for joy when I saw it. Not because I'm so good at it, but because I know now what my job is. My job is not to be famous, and it's not to be important, and it's not any of the things I used to struggle so hard for. It's to practice love. Practice love in the right way. That's the deal. You know, I love the story of Gandhi, and um, who was it, wrote him and said, what's that thing you say, Gandhi? Namaste. And he wrote back and said, it means the God in me salutes the God in you. What a beautiful thing. I don't have to agree with the murderer. I don't have to agree with people's behavior. But you know, life is so much easier, you know, since I know that. And that didn't come easily to me because I was a pretty hard cookie and had a lot of walls up. So. 21 years, I went to the States. I learned what to do with my inners. And then I came back, and um, one day the phone rang. 
See, God hasn't made a mistake in my life. I've made mistakes. He hasn't. And it was a man named Father O'Brien, a Jesuit. And he said, I want you to come and give some retreats. I just laughed. I said, Father, you don't know who I am. I said, I've been excommunicated several times. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> and he said, I don't care. He said, I know that you're a great educator. And he said, you've been in the program, and I hear you, you know, understand the program. And he said, I want you to come and give retreats. And that opened up, uh, as I retired from my career, that opened up a whole new world. I would never have said, oh, I think I'm going to start giving retreats. <laughs> so I, I did. And the very first one I gave was to women. And I like you women now. I don't have that thing. But I still remember, you know, I was a little edgy about this. And I'm closing the retreat, and I start to bawl. You know what bawl means? It's not cry a little bit. It's not, I'm going to shed a tear or two. I bawled. <laughs> and I said, I don't have a friend in the world. I have lots of acquaintances, but I don't have a friend in the world. And I'm lonely. Front a bunch of women? Ugh. But I did it, and it was the healthiest thing. I didn't know how to relate to people. I didn't know how to relate to people. I knew how to manipulate men, but I didn't know how to be a friend to women. And those women stepped up, and they took me to coffee and whatever. And I started to change. And I started to hear some, read some of this stuff about love. And one of my mentors said, you know, you're made out of love. And he said, if you have any doubts, go to the hospital and look at an infant. They're made out of love. He said, we don't give love. We're made out of it. And he said, stop crying the blues that you're lonely. If you want somebody to love you, you go love them. You give love. And he said, I'll tell you, you won't be lonely again. And you know, he was right. I'm not saying that it's a perfect, because we've got habits. I did, not habits like the nuns have, <laughs> but <laughs> things we've done so often, you know. And I sometimes get back into thinking, you know, I'm so lonely. Do I pick up the phone? No. Do I think about doing? Then eventually, yes, I do. That's one of the things I learned. That started the change in me. You know, I teach a class on Friday night, and about, about three weeks ago, one of the women said to me, she said, Mildred, she said, I hope you won't be offended by this. I said, no, I'm not that easily offended. What do you want to say? And she said, you're different. You're different. You're, remember that, Mel? She said, you're so much easier to talk to. You seem softer. I said, do you think I'd be insulted by that? That's the biggest compliment I've had. And I know that I'm different. I feel different about people. I do things different. And you know, there is so much written about this 
that it's not just what we do on the outside, it's the energy that comes off us with it. You know, just think of the difference in this. I hate your guts, and you should be different, but I'm going to be spiritual. I'm going to do whatever for you. Nice? You want to send that person packing, don't you? See, the, the, there's an institute, and I think we know it. You know when somebody is, is two-faced. I'll say it. You know, if I hate you inside, but I'm saying nice stuff on the outside, you know it. You know it. And that's how I think we change the world, by spreading that kind of goodness. I don't have to agree with the world. I don't have to agree with what people do. But I sure am pretty sharp about what kind of energy I'm giving out. See, that's, it's, I don't think it's about saying, you know, uh, I pray this much and I do this. I don't think this. How do I live this? What do you see in my life as I meet you on the streets? How do I deal? What do you read when you see me? What kind of energy am I giving off? You know, and if, I, if the energy I'm giving off is the energy of judgment, and I think personally, it, it just comes to mind that we spend far too much time thinking about how we're not doing it right. We're doing a lot of things right just by being in this room. You know, and I think sometimes, I think it was Wayne Dyer who said, what you think about all the time grows bigger. I don't change because I think I've, I've be misbehaved. I just think more about I misbehaved. And then they don't like me, and then this, and then that, and all that. Whereas, it's in my nature to misbehave. <laughs> it's in my nature sometimes. I know that I should do something and I don't do it. You know what? I don't beat on myself anymore. If, if I know that that's the way it is, let me get off my hiney and go do it for God's sake or else shut up about it. You know, it, this, this endless, I'm not okay. Yes, I am okay. You know what? I am perfect in my God essence, but I can say that because I look at you and I know you are perfect in your God essence. Sometimes we don't understand that, and so we go looking for a new car, we go looking for another sex idea, we go looking for money or some kind of success. But the truth of the matter is, as I stand here today, I am a perfect, because God lives in me. And how I am manifesting that can change. So, you know, it's not saying we don't take care. Of course we do. But I don't get any benefit out of beating on myself. All I get out of it is unhappiness. And a lot of thought about, huh, you know, I should, but what's the matter with me that I don't? It takes you nowhere. God, you're here. God, I want to do it better. I'm going to give it my, my best shot today. One more thing I want to talk about, and then I'm done. Um, 
my heart has opened up. You know, I've learned this too. God is present. That power is present all the time. And the way things work out is just perfect. You know, um, I didn't know this. I knew that I was hard. I had built walls around myself. I knew that. I knew that I judged people a lot. I knew that. But it wasn't much changing because I have a friend. I met this man. Short, he came in shortly after I came in. And there was something about him. He loves everybody. And I'd go to him and I'd say, how do you do that? And he'd say, do what? I said, you give off such a good energy. And he said, well, I don't know. He couldn't really answer. But he's my model. Because no matter what's happening in his life, there's that beautiful energy comes, comes off him. And I've thought about it a lot. And I know that's not, I used to be pretty tough. And um, one day I was with a bunch of women and somebody told something that had happened. And two of the women started to cry. And I said, what are you crying about? In probably that tone of voice. <laughs> and they said, we feel sad. That was it. You might as well have done this to me. I heard it. I, we feel sad. And I thought, I don't. I don't have the capacity to feel sad. You know what? I think sad. <laughs> oh, I'm the intellect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think sad, but I don't feel sad. You know what? Today, I can cry. Today, I can feel sad. I was telling Marilyn, you know, there's a, a spiritual uh, exercise we do called heart math coherence. And they recommend that, you know, you think about something you care about. I could think about, do you know what I mean? Are any of you in that place? I could think about people I cared about, but I didn't feel. You know what? Now I can feel. And that's a whole different world. And that's why, you know, some of the things that, like the language of the heart, that's it. It's not the language of the brain. The brain just thinks black and white, good and bad, right and wrong. It's, it's trying to figure out, you know what? I've never figured out anything that's useful in my life. It's all been brought through some event. You know, I keep a God book. The God book is about that thick now. And what I do when on a day where it happens, you know, where you get those inspirations, I write them down. Or a day when something is lost and I can't find it, and then I walk past it two days later and there it is. How is that? And I want to remember. And the more you see God at work, the more you see God at work, because God is at work. I think God likes to be, I don't know who God is, so 
put that in your pipe and smoke it if you don't like it. But I think there's a power. And I'll tell you, every morning, this, this is my deal now. I live, I sold all my houses, and I live in an apartment. Every morning, first thing I do when I get up, I go out to the balcony and I look at the sky. I love it. When I look at the sky, I know I'm looking at God. I'm looking right into the face of God. And I tell God, hey, this is going to be a good day. And it's the last thing I do at night. It's, there's nothing separate, not in pieces. It's all just one. And that's what the harp's about. The head thinks. Big, little, tall, small, rich, poor, good, bad, and tries to figure it out. And you know something? I spent a lot of time in my life doing that. I'm 90 years old. And I have spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to figure things out. And I have to tell you, every good thing, every good thing in my life today, the beautiful people, the people who love me, the people that I can love, the ability, I can't tell you how good this is, to be able to care for something, to be able to cry over a little dog, to be able to love a little dog. That's, that's a new world. I want to live another 90. <laughs> I got lots of time to make up, so I think I've said, I'm just grateful. You know what? I'm just grateful to have had the life that I've had and to be at the place I live alone. And sometimes I find that, you know, I, I do feel... Isn't, my friends have children coming home. But you know what? That big book, is it not just amazing? <gasps> I just love it. It says there, we made decisions based on self, which later put us in a position to be hurt. Why don't I have children coming home? I had abortions. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to get into that, but... One day, I was sitting there thinking, poor me. They've all got grandchildren coming home, and poor me, I'm alone. And I read it, and there it was. We made decisions based on self, which later put us in a position to be hurt. And sometimes those things have long arms. But you know what? As my sponsees always say, you've got kids. We're here. And that's really the truth, you know. And... And it's time that I end, or you'll throw me off for this. <laughs> it's been a pleasure being here with you. I love you dearly, and I can honestly say I mean that. Thank you. Yeah.